Let me pray and we're going to dive right in. Father, thank you so much for Melissa, for Elaine, for the people who work so tirelessly, for Barry, who work so tirelessly and early behind the scenes so that we could come together and to um, know you more deeply. Uh, thank you for your word that you've given to us and trusted to us. Thank you for the story that it tells from Genesis to Revelation. The one true and great story of you, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for our salvation. We pray now that you would help us, Holy Spirit, to work that story down deep into our hearts and souls. That we would live out of it, that we would see through it, that it would change us. Oh Lord, that is our heart's cry this morning, that we would be radically different because of what you've done for us. And that, let that be our witness to the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you know me, know that I have uh, a wife and three daughters. I live with all women. Uh, it's never a dull moment in our house. Um, those of you who have daughters or granddaughters uh, kind of know what I'm talking about. It's amazing. I never, I guess, as a single man, never really envisioned what it would be like for me. Uh, but certainly never would have written this story. Um, and that's the way God works, isn't it? Uh, whether you have kids or not kids, whether you're married or not married, he, he kind of writes our stories. Um, and we're grateful for that. Um, for me, what that means is that each and every day uh, can be totally different. And one of my jokes is sometimes I come home and all four of my um, women in my life are crying, right? And that's just the way it is. And it's good. I love it. It's never a dull moment. The other thing I love about it, though, is I have three daughters and I, I'm, I'm Thanks be to God, I can tell to you today is that they favor their mother. Um, they look just like her. And my wife was just telling me the other day that somebody, there's a place that we go to pretty frequently um, where one of the employees just asked, asked the boss who we know, um, hey, is that one family coming? You know, the one where all the daughters look just like the mom. <laughs> and I love hearing that because I don't think I make a very pretty girl, right? Uh, and some of you have daughters or granddaughters, you might think the same way. But there's an amazing thing that the older my daughters get, the more and more and more they look like my wife. And I love it. I love it so much, probably because I love my wife. But there's this resemblance that they begin to bear, not only in their physical appearance, but even in the different aspects of their personalities that you can see have my wife's fingerprints all over it. For some of you who have sons, maybe that's true for you. Uh, that you uh, can see yourself for good or bad <laughs> in your sons. For those of you who are sons and have a relationship with your father, uh, you can see that. For some of you, it skips a generation. And you actually find that the older you get, you have more in common with your grandfather uh, than maybe even your own father. We call this family resemblance, right? And there's a way that we kind of bear the mark of the families we come from. Uh, some of that is physical uh, and very much so. And sometimes one of my favorite things to do on a Sunday morning is to look around and you can kind of begin to see the kids who go with the different parents. Right. Or and when I say that I'm not saying just little kids either. Uh, you can see it actually in the older generations too, uh, an 80 year old to a, to a 60 year old, a deep family resemblance. You see it with brothers. Right. Some of you have brothers. You look a lot like your brothers. Sometimes you can actually see it among sisters. Right. There's a way that I think you understand we have family resemblance physically, but then there's also a family resemblance that we have emotionally, um, stylistically, mannerisms, uh, the way that we talk. I don't know if you've ever picked up a phone and talked to somebody thinking it was one member of the family and it was somebody else, because sometimes even members of the same family sound the same. 
And this can be either positive or negative. For some of you right now, as I'm talking about this, you're like, yeah, I love that. I love that I resemble my family. For the others of you, as I'm talking about this, it's actually exposing a wound in you, a, a deep pain, a history there. You're like, I don't want to resemble anything of my dad. For all of us, we tend to resemble where we come from. And it should not surprise us that as we think about the Christian life, one of the metaphors that we see over and over and over again, but simply one of the central ones that we see in the book of 1 John, is this idea of family resemblance. That part of our Christian identity is that we're actually resembling a new family, a, a new place of origin, and a new father, a heavenly father who's marked us and knows us and loves us perfectly. Uh, this is wild. We'll talk more about this in a little bit. But actually that Christ is our older brother. That all who has been given to Christ from the heavenly father is now ours in Christ Jesus. And that we now, as you look around this room, if you are a Christian this morning, it means that we are a family. And that's whether you go to this church or not. We believe there's one church, capital C Church, scattered throughout all time and history and place, right? And that makes us one family, that we actually have a deeper relationship than just acquaintances or friends or people who happen to show up on a Tuesday morning at a Bible study and sort of know each other. But all of you this morning who claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as you look around this room, that makes us brothers. And now we have a new family resemblance as children of God. And what I want to submit to you this morning is that that actually becomes one of our greatest acts of witness to the world. Not simply what we say, but who we resemble, what we look like as children of God. And so this morning, we'll look at four ways that we are actually countercultural. If you're wondering, what does it look like to live it as a Christian in our time and place, in our cultural moment, not knowing how we fit into all the things that we're facing there are four ways that we actually are countercultural now because of our new family resemblance as children of God. The first is this, and it has to do with confidence. Now you hear that and think, well, I thought Christians usually said the idea of confidence is bad. I want to show you a way this morning that confidence is actually good. The question is, where does your confidence come from? In our culture, the confidence comes from you. You. What you can achieve, what you can do, how you can work your way up the corporate ladder, what deals you could make. And we actually not only do this internally, but we praise it in one another. We live in a world that actually elevates pride, elevates hubris, right? We see it in sports. The idea that when somebody is playing with confidence, they're playing well. Question I want you to ask this morning as you think about the Christian life, the question is where does your confidence really come from? And what we see throughout the pages of scripture is that your confidence comes from yourself, that you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, see the only place that we can find our confidence is because of Christ, you will actually be exalted. So once you look with me, this is 1 John. We're actually gonna pick it up, 1 John 2, Verse 28 should be there on your sheet or you can get a Bible out. Notice what John says. He says, now, little children. I know you wanted to come to Bible study and called a child this morning. That's what you are. And that's the theme of what it means to bear our family resemblance. The word here in Greek literally means like a toddler. 
you, you are a little child. It says now little children, but it's, a, it's not a, um, a toddler in the sense of like, oh, you're acting like a child. What's wrong with you? It's actually a term of endearment. You're a beloved child. You're a beloved son. And now little children abide in him. There's our word. Abide in him, abide in Christ, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Okay, so what is John saying? He's, he's picking up on a theme that we actually see, and as I told you in the first couple weeks, we're going to see some crossover in the themes of the letters of John, and particularly 1 John, as well as the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation, which John also wrote. We see this in the book of Revelation, this idea that Christ is coming. That the story that we believe as Christians is not just a story in the past, but it's a story that tells our future. And I wonder how often you think about that. So you think about Christianity, you think about who Jesus is in your life in Christ. How much of it is situated in looking backwards? But how much of it is anticipating your future? One of the amazing things about the Bible is that it's a story that tells every part of it, including the end. And we know how the story ends. We know that Christ is coming back. One of the themes that you see is that Christ is coming back and therefore that must change the way that we live today. If you really believe that Jesus was going to come back and no one knows the time of hour, it could be today. Wouldn't that change the way that you lived? Would that change the way? If you knew Jesus was coming back this afternoon at 3 p.m., do you think you might live your day differently today? I would. I think you would too. And that's the point. That's what John is making here. He's so when he appears, we might have confidence and not shrink back in shame at his coming. When Christ comes again, he will come in power. He will come to restore all things and he will come in judgment. And so the reality that Christ has come again really has two implications for us this morning. One is a promise. It's a promise that we see in Revelation 21 that he will come again to make all things new. That there will be no crying, nor pain, nor mourning anymore. The former things will pass away. He will restore all things back to the way it once was in the garden. That's good news. But there's another aspect to his coming. It's that he is coming in judgment to set all the wrongs right again. And the question for you and me that we have to wrestle with is how do you feel about the judgment of God in Jesus Christ? Christ is coming again. He will come again to judge all things, to judge you and to judge me. And as you stand before Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who John says in the book of Revelation is coming in a robe dipped in blood with a sword coming out of his mouth and flames coming out of his eyes. This great judge who's going to rule all things. How do you feel in his presence? Are you going to shrink back in shame? Or are you going to have confidence before the King of kings and Lord of lords? Where does that kind of confidence come from? I want you to be honest with that this morning. It's hard for us to imagine, especially at 7 a.m. <laughs> but what we see throughout the scriptures, anytime someone's in the presence of God, they fall on their face in humility. Knowing just how exposed they are because of the sinners that they are. That's true of you, it's true of me. The question is, what is going to give you confidence before the judgment of God. That's what John is talking about here. That's so we would have 
when he appears, when he comes again, we might have confidence. The word in Greek here for confidence is not like pride or hubris. You could even translate this as assurance. What assurance do you have? How do you know that when Christ comes again, he will look on you and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. John continues, he says in verse 29, he says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So how do we know? How do we have assurance? How do we have confidence? Well, John tells us we must be born of him. So the first thing you need to know about being a child of God, a beloved son, is that means you have been born again. It means that you have a new origin story. That where you come from is now different because of Christ. If that sounds strange to you, it also sounded strange to a man named Nicodemus. This is in the Gospel of John. John 3, you can just listen or you're welcome to turn there. Again, we see this amazing parallel to what we see in the Gospel of John and what John makes practical in 1 John. So John 3, we're told that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Did you hear it? Just like John is saying in 1 John in the letter, we see this in the gospel of John in the words of Jesus. And Jesus is telling this man, Nicodemus, who's wondering, how do I inherit the kingdom of God? In other words, how do I stand before the judgment of Jesus, the king of kings, and inherit the kingdom and not be subject to death? And Jesus says, you must be born again. Now, you've, maybe if you've grown up around church, you've heard that. It just goes in one ear and out the other. Don't you think about how radically that sounds, how radically crazy that is? You must be born again. So different that it's if you have a new identity, fundamentally who you are and what you belong to. So, of course, Nicodemus says, I have no idea what you're talking about. Verse four, he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? If you think about it, it's not a crazy question. Nicodemus is taking Jesus at his word for face value for what it is. And he's saying, Jesus, what are you talking about? I asked you how I can enter into the kingdom of heaven and this is what you're giving me. How can a man be born again? And then Jesus begins to tell him what this looks like. What you might not realize, if you've never read this passage in its full, that this is actually where we get the most famous verse in the entire Bible. John 3.16. As Jesus begins to tell Nicodemus of what it means to be born again, this is what he says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. As I read this to you, don't just tune out because you've heard it before. But I want you to hear good news this morning. This is what it means to be born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. How is it that we are born again? 
were born again because God so loved you and me that he sent his own son to die in our place in order that we who were once orphans cut off from our inheritance and cut off from our heavenly father now might now be called sons. You are a son this morning because the son of God died in your place. You are now a little child, according to John, with a new family resemblance, a new inheritance and a new father. Because the son of God died in your place and all who believe in him are not subject to judgment. But instead, to them belong the inheritance of eternal life. So John says, little children abide in him. Have confidence knowing that the judge is coming. Confidence not in yourself, but in the judge himself who stepped down off of the judgment seat and took the punishment of death in your place so that you can now be sons of God. Second way that we are different as uh, this new family resemblance as children, it's purity. And there's two aspects of this that I want to talk about. Both have to do with the word holiness. Think about bearing the resemblance of your family. It means we become more and more, the older we get, we look more and more like our parents and grandparents. It's like my daughters, the older they get, they look more and more like my wife. The idea is as you continue to grow in Christ, you're going to look more and more like him. You're going to resemble him. You're going to change. The way that the Old Testament put this in the book of Leviticus, God says, be holy as I am holy. One of the most fundamental ways that we think about God is his holiness. That's, he's set apart. He's different. And he says, be holy as I am holy. In other words, bear my image. God made us in his image. He's called us to be image bearers, to be like him. The problem is that image has been broken us because of sin. But now as children of God, with a new identity, and a new heavenly father, with the power of the Holy Spirit, we're now made more and more like him. There's two aspects of holiness that John talks about. He talks about first purity. Look with me, verse three. He says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's the only word, time in the entire letter uses the word hope. It says, the one who hopes in him, that is in Christ, purifies himself as he is pure. Purity is an aspect of holiness that has to do with our cleanliness. That is, look, if you look backwards on your sin and you see the way that we are stained by it, the way that it makes us dirty and shameful, the way that it has now marked us, the idea of purity is that we would be cleaned that sin's effects on us would have no longer any power, that the sins we have done in the past are no longer staining us and marking us. That's purity, that we are actually made pure. But how are we made pure? Well, he tells us we are purified as he himself is pure. He goes on in verse four, he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So if we go on sinning, we're practicing something other than what God would have for us in his law. So the question we have this morning is, well, how do we purify ourselves? How can we make ourselves pure? And of course, the answer is, if you've been paying attention to 1 John, is you can't. You can't just clean yourself. You can try, and we try every single day. We scrub. 
One of my biggest pet peeves is to get something on my shirt, particularly at the beginning of the day. And now I have to live with it the rest of the day. And I will sometimes, if that happens, I'll go to the bathroom and I'll try to like use hand soap or something to get it off. And maybe you've done this before. And you're scrubbing and scrubbing and scrubbing. And then you look down and you're like, you know, it's wet. So you're not really sure. And then eventually it dries. You look down, and it's still there. How often do we live this Christian life this way? Just scrubbing ourselves, trying to clean ourselves, trying to purify ourselves. And you can't do it. The stain of sin is too deep. It's too dark. You cannot clean yourself. So how do we do it? Only Jesus can do that. Look at verse 5. John says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. What John is doing, again, at the beginning, in confidence, he's talking about his future coming, his future appearance. But now he's looking back on when he first came in his incarnation. And he's saying, look, you know that he came. He was incarnate. Why? Why was he incarnate? In order to take away sins. There's a great book, historic book. It's almost a thousand years old. It was written by an Anselm in around 1100 A.D. It's called Cur Deus Homo, literally means why the God man or why did God become man? Why did Jesus come to earth? That's the question of the book. And what Cur Deus Homo does in this brilliant form years before the Reformation is help us to see the reason why Jesus had to become man is in order to take on our flesh in our place to be a human being in order to be one of us, to be tempted like us and yet without sin, to really die a real death on the cross in our place. But he wasn't just fully man, he was also fully God. He was fully God in order to conquer sin and death for you and me. And that's what John, that's the question John is addressing here in verse 5. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. So that in verse 6, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning either has seen him or known him. In other words, if you live, if you abide, if you dwell on the one who died on the cross to take away your sin, then over your life, you will see God's holiness be put in you. You will be purified. But it's not you who's doing it. It's Christ in you. Galatians 2.20, Paul puts it this way. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live by, uh, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. To abide with Jesus is to be so identified with him that his death is now your death. And in his death and in his blood, you have been purified from the stain of sin. But there's a second part of holiness. So that's where we're going to end. See, Christianity is not just about what we don't do. And it's not just about being clean from the past things we have done. Christianity is also about what we do. It's about the new life that we've been called to in Christ. It's about bearing our family resemblance to the world. And that aspect of holiness is called righteousness. Purity is being clean from sin stain. Righteousness is now living differently. It's living the way we ought to live. It's actually each and every day fulfilling God's law. If purity is being clean from breaking God's law, righteousness is now fulfilling God's law. 
It's recognizing this new God-given identity and call that you've been given as his child, as his son, to bear his image in the world, to be a witness to the gospel, to embody all that we've been given in Christ. And this is what we see in verse 7. John continues, he says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. That word righteous, just think about the simplicity of that word. It comes from the root word right. It's that you would do what is right. Not simply that you would refrain from doing what is wrong, but now as a child of God, as his son, bearing that family resemblance, you're now going to actively do what is right. Verse eight, he says, whoever makes a promise, a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is Cordaeus homo round two. Why did he appear? He came to take away sin. Why did he appear to destroy the works of the devil? When Christ died on the cross, he freed us from sin, but he also destroyed sin and death. And we know one day when he comes again, he will defeat Satan once and for all. And so knowing that, knowing that you've been freed from sin and that the devil now has no sway over you anymore, you have been empowered as a son of God to now live for him, to do righteousness. Now, as you hear that this morning, I think there are two great dangers. And this is where we're going to end before we go to your tables. Two great dangers that I've seen historically throughout the Christian life, particularly in the last hundred years. As you think about the call for us to be sons of God, to be, live rightly in our world, one great danger is that you would be prone to perfectionism. That as you hear all of this and you hear what John is saying and this call to be sinless, you think, well, that's something I can do in my own power. And what I've seen so often is that particularly in the Reformed tradition, um, and that's any Protestant after the Reformation, that we believe this idea that we're saved through faith and not by works. You're justified through faith, not by what you do. But then we live the rest of our lives thinking we're now sanctified by works. We get that we're justified. We're going to heaven by faith. Not anything you can do can earn it. But now we live the rest of our lives before we get there thinking we can make ourselves better, that we can sanctify ourselves. And if that's you this morning, then I want you to listen to what I'm about to read because maybe this describes you. Because that is what I would call a very frustrated Christian life. Not only can you not save yourself, but you can't sanctify yourself either. In the beginning of a great book um, by John Owen called Mortification of Sin, most recent publication, a theologian named J.R. Packer talks about what this looked like in his own life, the danger of perfectionism. And he said this, he said, I scraped my inside, figuratively speaking, to ensure that my consecration was complete. And I labored to let go and let God when temptation made its presence felt he went on to say, as all I knew is what I expected experience was not coming. The technique was not working. Why, why not? Well, since the teaching declared that everything depends on my holiness being to total, the fault had to lie in me. So I must scrape my inside again and again to find whatever maggots of unconsecrated selfhood that still lurked there. And I became fairly frantic. That is a Christian life apart from the gospel. It's trying to sanctify yourself. 
as trying to attempt to become a child of God on your own terms. And it leads to a frantic and frustrated life. But there's an opposite reaction to hear that and to see that and say, I want nothing of that. And if we're saved by grace, then why don't we just keep on living by grace? And living by grace means we can do whatever we want. We know that we're covered, we're saved, we're going to heaven, then what's the rest of this life really matter? And that's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. I want you to hear what he said about cheap grace. I'll send you to your tables. Bonhoeffer said cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. No, cheap grace is the grace we give ourselves. Hear that. It's the grace you give yourself, not the grace given to you by Jesus. Cheap grace is when you give it to yourself. You let yourself off the hook. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living incarnate. What I want you to hear this morning is John is not calling us to either one. He's not calling us to fleshly, self-sought perfectionism of making yourself sanctified because you can't. But he's also not calling us to cheap grace. Because the truth is, grace is costly. Jesus gave his life for it. And what he's calling us is to live as children, to bear family resemblance, to now knowing with the power of the Holy Spirit that now God is your heavenly father and you've been made in his image and the stain of sin has now been purified from you because of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, who is the Son of God, is now your brother. The firstborn among many brothers who's gone before us. And all that the Father has given to the Son, he's now given to you. So that you would become more like him. So John says, little children, abide. Abide in Christ. Abide with your older brother Jesus. And know what it means to be purified, to have sin removed from you. But also know what it means now to live rightly with him. To actually bear a witness to the goodness of Jesus in a world that desperately needs it. Let me pray and send you to your tables. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, God, for the beauty of the gospel and the hope that we have. We do pray now that you would help us to live as sons that in our sonship we would identify with you as our heavenly father, that we'd see our new identity with you, Christ, as our older brother, the one who's gone before us, that we would follow you in your death and resurrection, and that we would also now understand our relationship to one another as the family of God, bearing resemblance of who you are and what you've done for us to our world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.